as a staff, <clears throat> all week long we have been talking about this uh, church directory, so I really don't know what Pastor Jerry's excuse is for not coming with your hair done, because you should have known, Jerry. Uh, if you are wondering about the staff directory and saying, but I already got my picture in the uh, directory and I've already got my information there, we just want to encourage everybody to do that because we want to update some of the information plus some of the pictures that we have. Your 16-year-old is six years old in the picture. So it'd be good to get some updated pictures of the family. You can, as we said, just very quickly go for a quick picture in the chapel after or you could just email us a picture. And especially those families and people that are a part of our church that have not submitted a picture, uh, we would love for you to do so as well, so it makes it easier for everybody to be able to identify who each other are. Now, there are some things in life that it is important to be on time for, and some of us are better at being on time than others. This is an ongoing issue in my relationship with my wife. I will not tell you which one is usually on time and which one usually isn't, but uh, you can probably figure that out for yourself. Some of the things that it's important to be on time for are job interviews. You want to be on time for a job interview. About a year ago, when we were looking for a youth pastor to cover the mat leave for Amanda, we had one of our candidates show up 45 minutes late. We were almost about to leave as a search committee, but this person finally stumbled in 45 minutes late, sat down, didn't even give us an excuse for why they were late and just started the interview. And I need to tell you that I had already made up my mind about this person before they even got through the first sentence. Job interviews are important to be on time for. It's also important to be on time for a final exam. You don't want to show up late for your final exam. It's, time, it's important to be on time for someone's surprise birthday party. Very awkward to show up late for that. You want to be on time for a cruise ship departure. Uh, they leave and they're not going to turn around to come back and get you. You want to be on time for the departure of your cruise ship. Another time that you want to be on time for, if at all possible, is to be at the bedside of a dying friend. You want to be on time for something like that, especially a best friend. Someone that you dearly love. But in the story that we're going to look at today, Jesus comes late to the bedside of a friend that he dearly loves. And what's strange about this story is he comes late deliberately. It's not like something obstructed his way or hindered him. He delays purposely. He hears the news and he chooses to delay. In fact, he delays until his friend is dead. Good and dead. At Jesus, the story says, doesn't arrive until four days after the man has passed away. And then when he arrives, no apology. In fact, when Jesus' disciples question him about this, Jesus essentially says, yep, he's dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. 
Turn in John to chapter 11, and let's read the beginning part of this strange story of Jesus being late to his own friend's bedside. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters. Interestingly, our church is named Bethany. It's named after this town here in the Bible. Uh, Every once in a while, I get people that come up to me, newcomers and that, and they'll say to me, who's the girl your church is named after? And I need to remind them that, no, it's not named after a girl named Bethany. Our church is named after this town right here in the Bible. Lazarus lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend, sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judah. But his disciples objected, Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judah were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. And then he said, our Lazarus, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go to wake him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant that Lazarus had died. And so he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Interesting encounter. You have to ask yourself, why when the news first came to Jesus, did he delay? The story makes it clear that it wasn't because of lack of love. It's emphasized repeatedly throughout the story. Lord, the one you love is sick. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when later in the story, Jesus finally arrives and is standing at the tomb and is weeping, the Jews said about Jesus, see how he loved him. So it wasn't because of a lack of love that Jesus delayed. The story tries to make that clear through the repetition. It also wasn't because of fear that Jesus delayed. Now, it made sense to some of Jesus' disciples. When Jesus first delayed, this 
totally made sense to some of his disciples. In fact, some of them were probably happy that Jesus had delayed. See, Bethany was only about two miles from Jerusalem. And the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, he had almost gotten himself killed, gotten himself stoned to death for blasphemy. And so it's not necessarily wise to go back into the territory of a place that has just tried to kill you. And so it would make logical sense when the news came, Lazarus is dead, for Jesus to say, whoa, I'm not going there. I know I care about Lazarus, but there's no need for me to go and get my head chopped off. And so some of the disciples probably breathed a sigh of relief when Jesus stayed put. But then Jesus completely flips it around and says, okay, now we're going to go. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people there were trying to stone you. And are you going to go there again? And then we see something in this story, just as an aside, about Thomas that shows another side to him. Often we think of Thomas just as doubting Thomas. And yet here, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Now I recognized after talking to Pastor Jerry about this, how this could be read two ways. Uh, either the way I was reading it is Thomas's total commitment to Jesus and saying, let's go too. If Jesus is going to die, I'm following him all the way and I'm willing to die too. Or the way Pastor Jerry read it, it was a bit more of a fatalistic way of saying, sure, let's go and let's die too. So either way, we don't really know the tone of voice in which Thomas said it, but Thomas here was willing to follow Jesus, either in commitment of some kind of martyr victory or in a fatalistic way, but either way, he was willing to follow Jesus to death. Jesus, however, was not avoiding Bethany because he was afraid. He says in many places that no one is going to take his life without Jesus allowing it. And so if it wasn't because Jesus didn't love, and if it wasn't because Jesus was afraid, why did Jesus delay going to Bethany when Mary and Martha begged for him to come and told him about his good friend Lazarus and that he was sick and that it was a sickness that was a sickness that could lead to death? Why delay? I think this is a question that many of us, even today, struggle with. Why does Jesus delay? We've probably all experienced the delay of Jesus in our own life. Why doesn't Jesus respond in a more timely fashion? We pray to him, we call out to Jesus, and he comes four days late. And our loved one has died. Why? When asked about his slow response, Jesus says, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from all of this. 
Now, if we can hear Jesus from a a first-time response, if we can hear Jesus uh, past all of the ideas of Jesus that we now know about him, Jesus' response can be fairly annoying. Why does Jesus so often make it all about himself? Your best friend is sick. Eventually, your best friend, one of your best friends, is going to die, and yet Jesus seems to make these self-centered remarks. I'm glad he's sick. I'm glad I wasn't there when he died. It's going to bring glory to me. In fact, we're going to wait until Lazarus is cold, stiff, and really dead. Because that's what's going to really glorify me. Why does Jesus always make it about himself? Any other person uh, we would see as an egomaniac. Could you imagine if we were gathered here this morning for someone's funeral? And the casket's in the front there. The funeral is about this person. And then I got up as the pastor to give the sermon. And the entire message was about me. What would you think? What is wrong with that guy? Especially if I started saying things like, you know, I'm really glad we're gathered to hear, and I'm really glad that Sally passed away because today, this service, because Sally passed away, it's really going to pump me up. It's really going to point to me, and it's really going to glorify who I am. You would be like, what are you talking about? Are you the most insensitive person around? And yet Jesus' remarks continually point to himself. He keeps making it about himself. We continue on in the story in verse 17. When Jesus then arrives late at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And then Jesus responded and said, yes, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises on the last day. Perturbed, Martha runs to Jesus when she sees Jesus coming. Uh, She knew that Jesus had some kind of power from God. Already in the book of John, Jesus has healed the blind man. Jesus healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus healed the royal official's son. What's interesting about that story is that in that story, Jesus didn't even have to arrive. In that story, the official said, just say the word, and I know that you can heal. 
And yet, in all of these cases, the blind man, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, the royal official's son, in each of these cases, the individual was a stranger to Jesus. Now we've got a good friend. If you would have been here, you probably could have helped him. You probably could have healed him. In fact, like you did in that other case, if you would have even just spoken the word, not even arrived on time, if you would have just spoken the word even from a distance, you could have done something. What's going on, Jesus? Do you care more about the people that you hardly even know than the people that love you the most? Where were you? To which Jesus appears to give one of those funeral cliches where he says, yeah, you know, but don't worry. They're in a better place or at least their suffering is over. He gives one of those types of phrases. Yeah, you know, don't worry about it though. Your brother's going to rise again. Now Martha had a good understanding of theology. She did know what happens to someone after they die. It's the same position that Christians to this day hold to. And that is, Martha said, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises on the last day. That's what Christians believe to this day. And there certainly is some comfort to that. The dead will be rise, will raise on the last day. We can say at a funeral when someone's here to give people words of consolation that don't worry, the dead, especially those that are the dead in Christ, will rise again on the last day. But what Martha and Mary are thinking is, yeah, but what about now? I mean, surely you could have given him a few more years of life. Uh, surely you could have given uh, Lazarus another 10, 20, 30 years. You, you can heal people. You could have healed him as well. And isn't that the question that we often ask? When we're at the bedside of a wife who's dying of cancer. And when she finally passes on, yeah, we know that, that in the last day when Christ comes back, she will rise again. But Lord, why not now? Why couldn't you heal her now? Even for another 10, 15 years. So that we would have more time together. Don't let them go. We know that God has the power to do that. We believe that. If we didn't believe that, there would be no angst. And so why don't you? Why aren't you more punctual? Why don't you heal? To which Jesus then replies, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. You see, there he goes again. It's all about you, isn't it, Jesus? 
Even now when you come to bring some words of consultation and you say, don't worry, he will rise again. And I say, yeah, I know he's going to rise again. When God comes back, the dead are going to raise. And then Jesus says, yeah, I am the resurrection. What is it about always being about you? I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Just believe in me. And even though you die, you will live. What a claim. Yeah, Martha, you know about that resurrection thing? Yeah, that's some good, good theology. You're right in there. But you want to know something? I'm the one that's going to do it. I'm the one that has life in me, and I'm the one that's going to raise the dead. Sometimes we've been in church circles for so long that we just don't get how crazy of a statement that is. To this day, it's statements like that that any Jew or any Muslim sees as a complete blasphemous statement. Who can claim to be the giver of life? Who can claim to be the one who raises the dead? Who can claim to be the resurrection and the life? The only one who has the power and the source of life within them is God himself. And so when Jesus says, I am the very essence of life, I am the one who conquers death and gives resurrected life, it is none other than a claim of deity. Because it's only something God himself can do. It's the stumbling block for so many people of other faiths, particularly faiths that believe in one all-powerful God. How can a man by the name of Jesus claim that kind of power? Claim to be the one I am. It's blasphemy. No human has the right to say those kinds of things. Now, I have no understanding for how Martha responds to Jesus. Other than those famous words by Pascal that says, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. How did Martha, at this point in her own journey, in her own faith, and her real lack of understanding of even who Jesus is, as we are going to see even as this story unfolds, but something in Martha's heart that didn't even connect all the dots with her head yet was able to say when Jesus said, after I am the resurrection of the life, said, do you believe this, Martha? Something in her heart was able to say, yes, Lord. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the one who has come into the world from God. I don't have an understanding of the complexity of what all that means. I don't really get even some of this, the resurrection stuff that you're saying. But I believe that there's something about you. Even though I haven't figured it all out yet. I believe, I trust. Martha, like Thomas, has sometimes in scripture been given a limited profile. Because when we think of Martha, we think of, oh, that's that busy woman in the kitchen. When Mary was down at Jesus' feet. And yet here, it was Martha who ran out to Jesus first. It was Martha who said, 
Yes, Lord. I don't get it all, but I believe you're the Messiah. The same kind of confession that Peter made. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. She shows a tremendous faith. And then Martha runs back to deliver the news about Jesus and his coming to Mary. And then Mary runs out, and I'm not sure if they dialogued together because when Mary runs out, she goes through the exact same thing as Martha. Verse 28, then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher's here, and, and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here. My brother would not have died. The same thing that Martha said. What are we to do with this Jesus? This Jesus who arrives late at a good friend's bedside when they're sick. The one who seems to regularly come late. The one who doesn't write us into our scheduled calendars. The one who doesn't, when we organize our day timer and put down time with Jesus, 3 o'clock Wednesday, he doesn't always come when we tell him to come. In fact, a lot of times he comes when it's a little bit inconvenient and we're like, Jesus, Wednesday, 3 o'clock, remember? Not now. Now's not a good time. Jesus, the one who makes someone else's tragedy an opportunity to talk about himself. What do we do with a guy like this? It's not comfortable. The one who says ludicrous things about being able to give life and raise the dead. Now, of course, claims are limited in their value. I could come before you this morning and say, I'm the resurrection and the life. I could claim all kinds of weird things about myself. And if I put the proof off until the end of the world, I'm pretty safe. I'm the one that will raise the dead, and I'm going to do it at the end of time. Well, how do you verify that? And so you can understand the questions that people were raising about Jesus. Sure, fine, you can say all these things. In verse 37, some said, this man healed the blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? He's making all kinds of statements and astonishing remarks, but prove it. What authority do you have to stay, say the kinds of things that you are saying? And so Jesus does something out of time to prove his claim. We continue to look at it in verse 33. 
When Jesus saw her weeping, that's Mary, and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Interesting emotion. Everybody's mourning, everybody's weeping, everybody's crying and wailing, and within Jesus, a deep anger welled up within him. He was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. I I find it interesting just the breadth of emotions we see within Jesus. Compassion. Martha said, Jesus asked to see you, Mary. He wants to see you. Anger at what's going on. The devastatingness of death. Crying, weeping at the tomb. And then the people were standing nearby as they saw him weeping and said, see how much he loved him. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus said. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. So here is where we see that she had faith, but she also was still struggling with the faith. Martha, the dear man's sister, protested. Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. You don't want to smell dead body. Four-day dead body. Jesus, be reasonable. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you? You would see God's glory if you believe. So, with everyone holding their noses, they rolled the stone aside. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of the people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. What would you have done if you were there? To be brutally honest, I would have ran. I would have ran for my life. It's like something out of a horror movie. Some guy yells, Lazarus, come out, and then some like guy that looks like a mummy comes out of the... I, I would have been so out of there. How would you have responded? John ends his gospel by writing... The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these ones that are recorded in this book of John are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, as Martha confessed. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. 
See, John, in this gospel, has deliberately chosen to organize his material in such a way as to prove a point. John is not writing objective history, as if there is even any such thing as objective history. But but John is making no apology for the fact that he's not trying to be impartial. He is like a lawyer defending his client and putting together all the evidence to try to prove his case that Jesus is correct in regards to what he's saying about himself. And so John places the raising of Lazarus as the seventh and final miracle in the gospel. Before the miracle of miracles, and that is his own resurrection. The Gospel of John begins with Jesus turning water into wine, followed by the healing of the official's son, and then the healing of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda, and then he feeds 5,000. Then he walks on water, then he heals the blind man, and then Jesus raises Lazarus. And even though we're only halfway through the book, no other miracle is mentioned in the Gospel of John until we get to the resurrection of Jesus. The miracle of Lazarus is the last of the seven miracles as the foreshadow of the grand miracle. The build-up to where the Gospel is going, the resurrection of Jesus himself. John is not simply writing random acts of kindness. About Jesus. Thinking back and going, hey, what were some of the really cool things Jesus did? Oh yeah, he healed that blind guy. We'll put that down. He is not just writing down random things. He is selectively choosing seven miracles because of even the significance of seven. And showing how each of these miracles say something about who Jesus is. In fact, he often has Jesus himself. Tell us what the miracle says about who he is. I am the light of the world, Jesus says as he heals the blind man. I am the bread of life, Jesus says as he feeds the 5,000. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says as he raises Lazarus. Not only does the Gospel of John have seven miracles, but it has seven I am statements of Jesus. Seven I am, which also is a playoff of the word Yahweh, which is the name of God in the Old Testament, I am who I am. When you look at the big picture of John, you find that the very structure of the Gospel is organized in such a way to prove who Jesus is. Seven I am statements, seven miracles, all miracles leading up to the grand miracle of his resurrection. As he then concludes the gospel saying, it was designed so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice also that he emphasizes that this is so you may continue to believe. We put too much emphasis on the one-time belief. Make a commitment to Jesus. This is why we need to be regularly in Scripture, regularly immersing ourselves in Gospels like John. It's not like you read it once, yeah, I believe. You know what? you got to keep reading it over and over because this was written so that you may continue 
to believe. As you see it over and over that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, you will have life in the name of the life giver. So there are seven miracles with the last one foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, which happens on a Sunday, the first day of the week. Or, as many of our ancient forefathers and theologians would say, as the church often referred to Sunday, as the eighth day of a new week. It's the first day, Sunday is the first day, the eighth day of a new creation. So the seven miracles in John are like the Old Testament. They are all pointing forward. They're all part of the old order. Building up towards the first day or the eighth day of a new creation that happens On the Sunday, the Easter Sunday, when Jesus raises himself from the dead. So the seven miracles exist as kind of a John the Baptist. They're all pointers. They're all signs. They're all saying, we must decrease because he must increase. It's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. All the miracles are pointing to that, and so it's so appropriate that the last of the seven miracles is a resurrection miracle. Pointing to the end of John, which is Sunday. Jesus' resurrection day, the beginning of a new week, the beginning of a new creation. That's where we live today. You see, a Lazarus resurrection is actually not what we want. The hope that we have as Christians is not for a Lazarus resurrection. More accurately, though it was four days into it, it's more properly called a resuscitation. Jesus simply restored him to life here and now. It was merely a foreshadow of the real thing. It wasn't the real thing. It was a shadow. It was an illustration. It was a picture, like what the Old Testament is, of a reality that was going to come in new creation. See, when Lazarus was brought back to life, it was in his old decaying body. When Jesus was raised to life, when we get to the end of John, it was in a perfect and imperishable body. When Lazarus came out of the tomb, his grave clothes were still wrapped all around him so that he looked like some kind of zombie or a mummy. When Jesus was raised, he left his grave clothes behind as if he just floated right out of them very different. When Lazarus was raised, he needed help to unwind his burial wraps so that he could walk around freely. But when Jesus was raised, he could come and go and disappear and reappear and go through walls and doors without any help from anyone else. When Lazarus was raised, he eventually died again. When Jesus was raised, he was raised to new life 
forever. And here's the good news. That this is not just about Jesus and Lazarus. Because as Paul brings this to light in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that our hope and our promise is for ourselves a Jesus resurrection. Not a Lazarus one. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth. While Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man. Lazarus was like this. Heavenly people are like the heavenly man, as Jesus was. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we're now like Lazarus and like Adam, we will someday be like the heavenly man, which is Christ. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. So let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, as Martha said, when the last trumpet is blown. For when that trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living, if we're living during that time when that last trumpet sounds, we will be instantly transformed for our dying bodies our Lazarus type bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies the hope that we have as Christians is not that Jesus is going to resuscitate us like Lazarus give us a few more years in this body, but that he is going to transform our bodies so that they will become immortal bodies just like the one that Jesus had in his resurrection. That's why the miracle of Lazarus is simply a pointing miracle. It's, it's a lesser miracle. It's a pointing miracle to the end of John, which is the great miracle. The miracle that we are to live for. That we will be resurrected like Christ. See, many Christians settle for old covenant Lazarus resuscitation lives. They have lives that resemble a dilapidated old car. That's held together by rules and principles and steps. Rather than new resurrected lives. Many Christians struggle with living a type of Old Testament type of life. Old covenant type of ways. Simply a resuscitated life. Jesus has come into their life and yes, they're not dead anymore. uh, But they're kind of like Lazarus' lives. Bound up in bandages and rags and walking around but yet still with death in them. And Paul so often in the New Testament is warning against Living that kind of Christian life. 
An Old Testament Christian life, you could say. In Colossians, he talks about this. He says, you've died with Christ. And he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world? Such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, don't do. That's the kind of church I grew up in. A don't touch, don't handle, don't taste, don't do this, all this. Listen to what Paul says. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion. They require self-denial. They require severe bodily discipline. But here is where I, in a a very experiential way, even as my own Christian growth came, there's something about in that kind of culture that I grew up into that appeared wise, it appeared strong and self-denial and discipline, but at the end of the day, it wasn't working. And this is what Paul says. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. It's why we have people that have lived sort of a Lazarus, resuscitation, Old Testament type life, and yet they live defeated Christians. They never get over their issues of anger or their issues of lust or their issues of greed. They just kind of stumble through life like this dilapidated car where what the gospel is moving towards, the seven miracles are building towards the resurrection of Christ, the life that we find in him, is where Paul continues in Colossians to go. Right after he says, all these rules have no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, not new life with Lazarus, but with Christ. You'll see the verse up on the screen here. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Is the slide stuck? Since you have been raised to new life with Christ. There we go. Set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about these things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share In all his glory. How do we begin to live victorious Christian lives? It's by reflecting on the resurrection of Christ and the fullness of what that means. New covenant lives and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to get to in John as he gets there. And when we think about the things of heaven, when we think about the things of resurrection, when we realize we've been raised to new life in Christ, we begin to live free. Not confined. See, new covenant lives are represented in Jesus, who in his resurrection was utterly free. I come and go when I please. Appear here, go here, do this, adapt to that, move here. That's why the gospel has been so adaptive to so many cultures and spread around the world as the Holy Spirit moves as the wind. Because it's free. 
It's life. The Christian walk is a life that is life-giving and oriented. It one that so deeply recognizes the reality of our future resurrection in Christ that we live now as if we've already been raised. We so believe it that we live now as if we've already been raised. And when that happens, we stare at death from a very different perspective. When we look at death, we look at it from the perspective of resurrection. When we understand that, we look at our sins in light of forgiveness so that they don't bind us and trip us up and have us wallow in shame and guilt. Our disappointments are now faced in light of hope because even the darkest and bitterest disappointments can be made into brand new life through Jesus. Because that's what he does. He creates out of nothing, raises the dead. We willingly give up comfort and security. The comfort and security that rules often give us to risk living fully alive lives. Our spending habits become a source of blessing others rather than about Securing ourselves. Our commitments and promises in marriage and to our kids and to our jobs and to other people and to organizations are kept in light of eternity. Not in light of the moment and how I feel at the time. When we begin to see things from Jesus' resurrection perspective, it reorients the whole way we approach life. And so, Jesus is always on time. It's our agendas that are often out of sync with God. Not his out of sync with us. Nothing happens that's outside of God's control. And though this raises raises all kinds of questions, Jesus has so much more in mind than just raising Lazarus. Because so many of the things that we ask for are mere temporary fixes. Mere band-aids. Jesus has more in mind than your resuscitation. Jesus has in mind your resurrection. The glory of God as it shines through Jesus and will shine for all of eternity as he brings his people into full life that's beginning now Jesus has defeated death and one day Jesus is going to call each of us by name and this Pastor Jerry and I were talking about it right before the service the profound idea that when the trumpet sounds and when the resurrection happens, and it happens in mass, the dead from all time are raised. And yet, when that happens in mass, he will call your name personally and say, Joseph, come forth. Val, Martha, Mary, Bill, come forth. 
to new and everlasting life. He calls you by name to be with him forever. And we will not spend eternity looking like Egyptian mummies, but be clothed in Christ in new immortal bodies made to live and rule with him forever on the resurrected earth. In conclusion, theologian F.F. Bruce says, the shout which calls Lazarus back to life is a parable of that coming day when all who are in the tombs will hear the same quickening shout and come out. It is only a parable because Lazarus is called out to a renewal and a continuation of mortal life. Whereas those who hear the shout on the last day are called out to resurrection life. So when our temporary solutions don't come, we live by faith in the hope of Christ's eternal solution where he will make everything right. And we live now in light of that truth. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, we know so well the infirmity and the weakness of this human life. Strengthen the weakness of our faith and give us trust for our trembling and hope for our fears. Strengthen the weakness of our wills that we may ever be strong enough to choose the right and to resist the wrong. Strengthen the weakness of our decisions that we may no longer halt between two opinions. Strengthen the weakness of our loyalty that we may never again be ashamed to show whose we are and whom we serve. Strengthen the weakness of our love that we may come at last to love you as you have first loved us. O oh God, our Father, we know so well the weakness of our bodies. Keep us in good health, but if illness and pain come to us, give us patience and cheerful endurance and healing in the end. And as the years take from us strength of body, give us peace of heart and serenity of mind. O oh God, our Father, we know so well the weakness and the insecurity of our hold upon this life. In life, we are in the midst of death. Comfort us when dear and loved ones are taken from us. And at such time, give us the glorious and immortal hope of life eternal, as well as the sad memories of mortal loss. Deliver us from the fear of death, so that we may look on death as a gateway to eternal life forever with our Lord. Grant us all through life your all-sufficient grace that your power may ever be made perfect in our weakness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together.